This morning we're continuing in 1 Peter 2, and the title of this sermon is A Faithful Witness in a Faithless World. We are today living in a faithless world, a world that rejects Christ. But we've been called to be faithful witnesses in this faithless world. In the summer of 1805, a number of Indian chiefs and warriors met as a council at Buffalo Creek in New York. They gathered together to hear a man from the Boston Missionary Society preach the gospel. After the sermon, a response was given by Red Jacket, who was one of the leading chiefs. And listen to what the chief said to the preacher. He said this, Brother, we're told that you've been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less determined to cheat Indians, we will then consider again of what you have said. What was this chief looking for? He was looking for a life that matched what this man was preaching. He's looking for witnesses that resemble the words that were being preached. And in our passage here before us, this is what Peter is urging the believers with. His goal in this next section here in 1 Peter 2 is to urge his readers to make sure that their life matches the gospel that they believe and preach. Now, as we've been studying over the past couple of months, we have seen what it means to be a part of the family of God and how we have been called to be a part of the spiritual house of God. Last week, we concluded that section as we looked at the favor that we have been shown by God as those who belong to the church. But here in, in verse 11 in chapter 2, there is a shift that takes place. There's a, a shift in Peter's focus where he now turns to how we are to live as those who are a part of the spiritual house of God in the midst of an unbelieving world. Not so much how we live amongst each other inside of the church, but how we live amongst outsiders, those that are outside of the church of God. If you remember, we talked about the difference between believers who belong to the spiritual house of God and those who are disbelievers who don't belong to the spiritual house of God. In fact, those who are disbelievers don't belong to the church, but they belong to the world. They're part of the world system. They are, as we saw last week, those who belong to the darkness because they're not in the light. They belong to this world. But even though we are not of this world, we still live in this world, right? We live in the midst of this dark world. 
And so how do we live amongst these people who are of this world? How do we live in this world but not be a part of this world? As those who are a part of the church of God. Well, that's what Peter is addressing in this next section that really runs all the way down through chapter 3 and verse 12. That's the next section here in Peter's letter. Peter's now addressing the church who is living amongst a, a hostile world. Living in a world that's persecuting them as Christians. They are persecuting them for their belief in Christ. And even though life is difficult for them, they are to be a witness for Christ in every area of life. In fact, Peter addresses the different spheres of our lives, different areas of our lives as we live in this world, as he works through this next section. In our passage here today, we're going to see how Peter begins with our own personal lives and living amongst those who are around us. How do we live our own personal lives in this world? Then in verses 13 through 17, he talks about how we are to submit to the governing authorities who are over us in this world. Then in verses 18 through 25, Peter talks about slaves submitting to their masters. As we'll see there, we'll talk about the employer-employee relationship there. How we work. Slaves submitting to their masters. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Peter talks about wives submitting to their husbands. That wives are called to submit to their husbands. And so over the next few weeks, as we work our way through this section here in 1 Peter 2, we're going to see what Peter tells us about how we are to live our social life, our work life, and even our home life going to see what God calls us to as we live in this world. But the goal in all of this is to be a witness for Christ. That's the goal that Peter has in mind here, is that we would be witnesses for Christ who live in such a way that unbelievers will see how we live our lives as believers and glorify God. The goal here in all of this is to bring glory to God, not to ourselves, but to our God. But it all begins with how we live our own personal lives. Not just the words that we say, but also how we act, as those two should match up. The words that we say and the actions that we do, they should match each other. We're called to be a witness for God by our words and also our actions. And that is Peter's focus here in our passage this morning. So let me read our passage for us. And just to get a a further context for this, I'm going to read verses 11 through 20. So follow along as I begin to read in 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Peter says this, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, 
glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if, for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Now as we think about these verses, and as we'll see in this passage here this morning, the goal in our Christian living is to provoke unbelievers to a place where they will glorify God in the day of visitation. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means in a moment. But remember what we saw last week. We've been called out of darkness and into God's marvelous light. So that, remember there's a purpose in all of that. So that we may proclaim the excellencies of God. It's the purpose to which God has called us out of this world and into His marvelous light, into His kingdom. We've been called out of darkness and into light by God's mercy to be a witness of the greatness of our God. And how do we do this? How do we do that? How do we live in light of all of this? We live righteous lives. We live righteous lives. In fact, notice down in verse 15. Notice what Peter says there in verse 15. He says, for such is the will of God that by doing right, that's righteousness there, by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. We don't silence those who are hostile to God and the gospel through unfriending them or canceling them out. It's not what we do. We silence them by doing what? By living righteous lives. By doing what is right. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means when we get to verse 15. But the point is that we are called to do good works and live righteous lives. As those who have been called out of darkness and into light. Peter says down in verse 24 that Christ died on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. As believers, we are dead to sin, but alive to righteousness. And so we're called to live righteous lives, and those righteous lives are to be a witness to the watching world. In fact, 
Even in chapter 3 and verse 1, Peter talks about submissive wives who have an unbelieving husband. And he says there that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. You see, righteous behavior in our lives is a very important tool when we are witnessing for Christ. We must preach the gospel when we are witnessing. We must use words, right? Because faith comes from hearing and hearing the words of Christ. So we must preach the gospel and use our words. But we must also be living lives that line up with that word that we are preaching. Now, as as we look at verses 11 and 12 this morning, we're going to see two exhortations from Peter so that we might be faithful witnesses in a faithless world. Two exhortations from Peter so that we might be faithful witnesses in a faithless world. And our first exhortation deals with the inner man. The first exhortation deals with the inner man, while the second one deals with the outer man, the outer behaviors. The first one deals with our private life, while the second one deals with our public life. So what are these two exhortations? Well, the first exhortation is this, that we must have inner integrity. We must have inner integrity integrity. Look again at verse 11 and notice what Peter says there. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Now notice what what Peter calls these persecuted believers that he's writing to here. Notice what he calls them. He calls them beloved. Beloved. Why does he call them that? Well, this is a term that shows Peter's warm affection for these persecuted believers. Remember, he's he's an elder in the church. He's a shepherd over God's people. He cares for them. These people are near and dear to his heart, and so he calls them beloved. But more importantly, it showed the fact that they were objects of God's love in Christ. There's essentially a double meaning to this word. Not only is it Peter's warm affection and love for them, but he's also saying, and you also are loved by Christ. You are those who have been loved by Him. Remember, Peter just reminded them back at the end of verse 10 that they have received God's what? Mercy. They've received God's mercy. They are loved by God. Then, after reminding them that they are a loved people, he then gives them this tender, caring exhortation. Notice what he says after he says, Beloved, he says, And I urge you, I urge you. That word urge there means to come alongside, to aid or help, or to appeal to. It's interesting because this word here in the Greek is not a command. It's not a command, but it's a loving exhortation or a tender appeal. You see, Peter, as an apostle, has the authority to command, right? We see that even in his his letters. We see that with the apostle Paul in his letters. He does give commands. 
Peter has the authority to command these believers to do these things, but instead he appeals to them as those who are loved by God and who know the right things to do. One commentator says of this urging here, this is an earnest and persuasive address aimed at encouraging the readers to face their trials and inner temptations. He's urging them, coming alongside them as a loving shepherd, saying, listen, people, I'm, I'm here to help you. I love you. I care for you. And so he makes this appeal based upon who they are, that they are those who are loved by God. As those who are loved by God, listen, this is what I have to say to you. And then notice how he identifies them. Notice what he calls them here. Two words, two things. He calls them aliens and strangers. These are aliens and strangers. Now why would he call them this at this point? Well, he wants to remind them who they are because of what he is about to tell them. He wants to remind them. You see, he's already told them that they are aliens and strangers in this letter. Like back up in chapter 1 and verse 1, he says to those who reside as aliens, as aliens. Or another way that we could translate that Greek word there for aliens is strangers. He says, you, you are strangers in this land in which you are living. And then in chapter 1 and verse 17, he says, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. That phrase there, during the time of your stay on earth, the Greek word that is used there means a foreigner or a sojourner or a person without citizenship. And so he says here, you, you are aliens, you're strangers, you're, you're people without citizenship as you live here in this world. And as we see then, Peter has already used these two words, aliens and strangers, in this letter, but he reminds them here that that is who they are. He's saying, don't forget that. Don't forget, you don't belong to this world. You, as those who are loved by God, you belong to Him. You are God's children. You're God's people. You're not a part of this world. In fact, that word strangers here portrays them as living alongside of a people to whom they don't belong. That's the idea behind that word. You're living alongside of a people to whom you don't belong to. That is, we live alongside of a people who belong to the darkness, who belong to this world, but we don't belong to them. We used to belong to them before we were saved, before we, we were redeemed. We used to belong to them. This world used to be our home when we lived in the darkness, but things have changed. There's been a transformation that's happened in our lives in our hearts. We've been changed, and so we no longer belong to this world. We don't belong here. One commentator says, the, the doubling of the nouns, aliens and strangers, emphasizes the foreignness of believers in the Christ-rejecting world. We're just a bunch of foreigners. We don't belong here. 
But you see, too often, we see Christians who are trying to fit into this world. They're trying to fit in this world. They want to look and act and be just like the world so that they don't look any different. But we are reminded here that we're to be different because we are different. We don't belong to them. There was a man who led some study tours in Europe during the Cold War and he tells of a time when he had to go through, through communist East Germany. Listen to what he said. He said this. Our itinerary, our, our itinerary took us from Amsterdam to Berlin, which meant that we had to go through communist East Germany. At the border, we had to show our passports, have our luggage examined, and let the guards check the bus. We waited about three hours for clearance. Remember, one of the officials told me, there is no American consulate in East Germany. So do not lose your passports or entry papers. This man went on and listened to what he said about that trip. He said this, talk about feeling unwanted. The message was clear. We'll gladly take your money, but we don't want you. We felt the animosity until we left. And the same was true of these believers that Peter is writing to. We don't want you. That was what the world was telling them as they were persecuting them. You are different from us, and you don't belong to us, and we don't like you. In fact, we don't want you, and we'll do everything to get rid of you. That's the persecuted believers that Peter is writing to here. And so Peter reminds them then that as believers, you're right, we don't belong to them. We don't belong here. We're just people who are passing through. Because our home is not this world, but our home is where? It's heaven. Our home is heaven. In fact, remember what Paul told us in Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't belong to this world. We're aliens and strangers. And so we shouldn't try and act like this world. Don't try and be like them. We don't belong to them. Peter wants us to be reminded of this as he then gives the first part of his appeal. Notice what he says there. Next in verse 9 he says, Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. As aliens and strangers who don't belong to this world, our duty is to abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, what does this mean? What are fleshly lusts? Well, these are sins that our flesh desires. 
It's simply here just a general term to mean any sins that our flesh desires, that our unredeemed flesh desires. Oftentimes we think of fleshly lusts as sexual immorality, and while that is a part of it, Peter has in mind anything that our flesh desires that is sinful. Not just specifically sexual immorality, but anything that our flesh, de- our flesh desires that is sinful. In fact, Paul gives us a list of these in Galatians 5.19 where he says this, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. He's saying there, this is not an exhaustive list. There's even more. I could keep going on. Those are all fleshly lusts. Fleshly desires. Sins. Really anything that is sinful. Anything that is characteristic of the unredeemed flesh is what these fleshly lusts would be. And notice what he says here, that these are lusts. Or we can say that these are desires or passions. These are inward desires. Inward passions. Inward desires that have their root in what the flesh wants, not what the Spirit wants. What does Peter then urge us to do notice what he says there he says abstain from them abstain from these fleshly desires that word abstain there means to avoid contact with to keep away from or to refrain from you see although we are a redeemed people as the church of God as Peter has already told us earlier on in 1 Peter 2 we are a redeemed people we belong to the church of God but we are not exempt from selfish and sinful desires Those won't go away until our bodies are redeemed as Paul tells us in Romans 8:23 That's what we are eagerly awaiting right We're awaiting for the arrival of our Savior so that our bodies will then be redeemed. So because we aren't exempt from fleshly lusts, we need to continually abstain from them. Why? Notice what Peter says about these fleshly lusts. He says, which wage war against the soul. The, flesh, the fleshly lusts wage war against the soul. What is the soul? Soul here is the Greek word suke, and it refers to the place of feelings and emotions, or we could say it's the inner man. It's the inner man. As one commentator says, it's man's inner moral nature, the seat and center of self-conscious human life. Essentially, it's who we are. We are made up of 
flesh and a soul. Dichotomy. It's two parts of man. You have the flesh and you have the soul, the redeemed soul. And guess what happens? They are at war. Romans chapter 7. Isn't that what Paul talks about there? Why do I do the things that I don't want to do? It's because there's this battle that's going on. There's this war that's raging on. My flesh has these desires that it wants to do. And my soul, which is redeemed, is fighting against those. What is Peter saying here? He's saying here, there's a war that's going on. The term wage war is a strong term that generally means to carry out a long-term military campaign. How long is that military campaign? Till the day we die. Right? Even the Apostle Paul says, I haven't become perfect, but I have to keep striving toward Christ-likeness. That war is going on. It's a long-term military campaign. War there indicates an attitude of enmity and active hostility. And the picture here is of a civil war that's going on between the fleshly desires and the redeemed soul. There's a battle that wages there. One commentator says those lusts constitute an army of soldiers engaged in constant warfare against the soul aimed at capturing the believer and making him useless to God. See, that's what's going on there. There's a battle that's going on. There's a civil war between the the fleshly desires and the redeemed soul. And it's aimed at capturing the believer and making him useless to God. Now, this doesn't mean that a believer who gives in to the fleshly desires loses his salvation. Right? We cannot lose our salvation. It's impossible. Once you have been saved by God, you are eternally saved. He gives eternal life. Not temporary life. Eternal life. So you can't lose your salvation even when you give in to the fleshly lusts. But these fleshly lusts want to conquer the soul of the believer and bring him down so that he is useless and not one who is being used as a witness for God. He's like the salt that loses its taste, as we read about earlier in Matthew chapter 5. Or the light that is hidden. It becomes useless. As he's called to be a witness for God, to proclaim the excellencies of him. So he says there's this war that's going on. Between the fleshly desires and the redeemed soul. So what do we do then? What do we do here? Well, we must fight this battle that's going on inside of us. We have to fight it so that we might be useful to the Lord. Now, there are times where the fleshly desires, they overcome 
We give in to them, and we sin against God. So what do we do? Repent of that sin. Ask for forgiveness and turn from that sin. And what will God do? He will forgive you. Because he promises to forgive all those who come to him in repentance. But we have to continue to fight this battle. We have to fight it inside of us so that we might be useful to the Lord. Which means we must have inner integrity. We must have inner integrity. What does integrity mean? Integrity means wholeness or completeness. A person of integrity is living rightly. It's a person who is not divided nor being a different person in different circumstances. A person of integrity is the same person in private that he or she is in public. Integrity means a person adheres to a code of moral values. And in this case, it's adherence to what? To God's law. To the Word of God. That's what we adhere to. We want to be obedient to the commands that God has given to us in His Word. We need to be people of integrity. But where does it begin? It all begins inside, in the inner man. And that's where the battle must be won. That's where it's fought, and that's where it must be won, in the inner man. Now you might ask, how, how do I defeat these fleshly temptations that I have? The fleshly desires, the fleshly lusts. Well, the Word of God tells us how to be victorious in this, how to defeat these. Listen to Galatians 5.16. Paul says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. There it is. Walk by the Spirit. What does that mean to walk by the Spirit? Live in obedience to the Word of God. Desire Him. Desire His Word. And live in obedience to His Word. That's walking in the Spirit. And when you do that, when you are walking in the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. It's a battle. That battle must be won in the inner man. And so Peter's first exhortation is for us to have inner integrity. Second, there's a second exhortation that he gives, and that is that we must have external excellence. We must have external excellence. Not only inner integrity, but also external excellence. Excellence. Look again at what Peter says there in verse 12. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Peter now shifts the attention from the inner spiritual battle that's going on to the outward conduct of the believers. As we fight the battle within and conquer those battles, it will then show up in our behavior as we live in this dark world. Now notice Peter says here, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. What, is, what does Peter mean by Gentiles here? He simply means unbelievers. Those who are non-Christians. 
One translation says it this way. Live such good lives among pagans. There it is. Among the pagan world. Those who are unbelievers that, that don't believe in Christ. We're to have conduct in our lives that shows the fruit of the victory in the inner man. And as we win the battle inside, we will see excellent behavior on the outside. And we're to live out this excellent behavior, not in order to save us, but to show the world that we have been saved. So that people will come up to us and say, why do you act like that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. How much time do you have? Sit down. Because I've got the gospel to preach to you now. You see, we're to show the world that we have been saved. That's why we live excellent lives. We're to show the world that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that we saw last week. Now remember, Peter's readers are living amongst unbelievers who are persecuting them for their faith in Christ. What do you think these unbelievers are doing when they persecute these believers? They're watching their life. They are persecuting them, and then they are watching their life to see if their life matches up with what they say they believe. They're watching to see how they respond. So, Peter's appeal here to these believers is that they would live in such a way that they would be winsome toward the unbelieving world. Not giving the unbelieving world an excuse to continue to live in their unbelief toward Christ, but to win them over to Christ. Their Christian conduct should be attractive. In fact, that word excellent that he uses there, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. That word excellent there means beautiful or commendable or admirable or praiseworthy. And it has the idea of something being aesthetically good, beautiful, fair, or listen to this, appealing to the eye. Appealing to the eye. See, the world that we don't belong to is watching how you and I live. They're watching us. In fact, Peter even acknowledges that in verse 12 where he says, as they observe them. Notice towards the end of verse 12 there. They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them. What's he saying? They're watching. They're observing everything that you do. Peter knows that the world is watching and it says that we need to live our lives in ways that would attract others to Christ. Not drive them away, but attract them to Christ. Why? Well, he tells us in the next part of verse 12. He says, So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. The goal is that our witness would win them over to Christ. Now notice that Peter says that they will 
slander you as evildoers. They will slander you as evildoers. Peter acknowledges that even though we live excellent lives, this doesn't always mean that we will be treated nicely by the world around us. The world will slander us even when we are living out excellent behavior. In fact, even in some cases, the world will slander us because of the excellent behavior that we have. And then they will accuse us as evildoers, even though we live excellent lives among them. How do we know that they will do this? Because they did it to our Savior. They did it to our Savior. Listen to John 18.30. John 18.30 says this, They answered and said to him, that is, the Jews answered and said to Pilate, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Jesus, who was sinless, who only healed people and fed them and even raised the dead, the world accused him as being what? An evildoer. So we shouldn't be surprised when we are accused of this as well. Our Savior was accused of it. And His behavior was clearly excellent. <laughs> it was perfect. And even these believers in, in Peter's day, they were, they were accused of all kinds of things. You might ask, well, what would they have been accused of? Well, Christians then, these Christians that Peter is writing to, were accused of being atheists. You ask, how is, how is that possible? Well, because they didn't worship the Roman gods or any of the emperors who claimed to be gods. They didn't do what the world was doing. The world around them was worshiping the false gods, the Roman gods. But they didn't. So what did the world accuse them of? You're atheists. They were also accused of disloyalty to Caesar. Because who did they say was Lord? Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. You've turned on Caesar because you're saying that Christ is Lord. They were accused of all kinds of evil deeds, according to the world, all kinds of slanderous things. But isn't that what Jesus said would happen? We read it this morning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Listen to what Jesus says. He said, Blessed are you when, not if, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Even though they might slander us and throw all kinds of attacks at us, we are still to have excellent behavior because we never know when that excellent behavior might win them over to Christ. Which is what Peter says there at the end of verse 12. Where he says, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And what does it mean that they will glorify God? The word glorify there means to honor, to magnify, extol, or to praise. So does this mean that these pagans will see the good deeds of the believers and remain pagans and give praise to God? No. It's not what that means. Because pagans don't do that, right? <laughs> they don't praise God. As we've already seen, there are those who slander the Christians. Unbelievers don't worship Him. They don't give praise to Him. So, they wouldn't slander the Christians and then see their good deeds and then all of a sudden begin to praise God because of the good deeds of the believers. It's not what Peter's saying here. So what does this mean then? Well, the implication here is that the pagans will see the good deeds of the Christians and instead of slander them, they will repent of their sin and trust in Christ and be won over to Christ. And when that happens, then what will they do? Glorify God. Because isn't that what believers do? That's what we're doing here this morning, right? Giving praise and glory to our God. Why? What has He done? He saved us. He redeemed us. He took an unredeemed man a sinful man who has only sinned against a holy and righteous God, and he saved this man. Why? Because of anything I've done? Nope. Not because of a single good deed that I did, because there's nothing good that we can do to save ourselves. So why did God do it? Well, his word tells me, back up in verse 10, he showed me mercy. He was merciful to me. A sinner. And he sent his son to die on a cross for me, for my sins. And he was raised again so that I could have eternal life with him. Why did God do it? Because he loves me. Because he decided to show me mercy. So what should I, what can I do? All I can do is give glory to Him, right? Is to praise Him and thank Him for the salvation that He's given to me. That my eternity is not eternal damnation separated from Him, but my eternity is with Him in glory forever. Praise God. Isn't that your heart? I know it is. 
That's why we gather together every Sunday morning. We come to give worship and praise to our God for what He has done. And that's what Peter is saying here. Look, they're going to observe your good works as you proclaim the gospel to them and they see your good works matching up with the gospel that you preach. They are going to repent of their sin and trust in the Christ that you trust in and they will then be saved. And what will they do? The same thing that we do. They'll give glory to God. They worship Him. Notice Peter says here, when they will glorify God. When will they glorify God? He says, in the day of visitation. What does he mean by that? Well, this day of visitation here is seen in both the Old and in the New Testament. And it refers both to a day of judgment and also a day of salvation. The day of visitation is both a day of judgment and a day of salvation. In Isaiah 10 and verse 3, the, the Legacy Standard Bible says it this way. Now, what will you do in the day of visitation? And in the devastation that will come from afar, to whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? What's Isaiah saying there? What's going to happen in that day of visitation? Judgment is coming. Devastation is going to come upon you. That day of visitation that Isaiah is talking about is a day of judgment. It means judgment there. We also see this in other verses in Isaiah and even in Jeremiah. Jesus speaks of a time of visitation in Luke 19.44 when he wept over Jerusalem and he then spoke of their judgment. He came for salvation. That was the day of his visitation. He came for salvation, but they denied him and brought upon themselves judgment. So this day of visitation in Scripture it means day of judgment, but this day of visitation also refers to a day of salvation. Jeremiah 27, 22, it says this, They will be carried to Babylon, and they will be there until the day I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. What's he saying there? He's talking about the exile. When what's going to happen to Israel? They're going to be exiled. Until the day that I visit them and do what? Restore them. Bring them back. Save them. It's talking about the salvation of Israel. But listen to Luke 7.16. Luke 7.16, this is where Jesus resurrected the widow's son. And listen to what it says. Luke 17, uh, 7.16, it says this, Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God and saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited His people. God visited His people. Those people all of a sudden were glorifying God. Sound familiar? That's what we just read in... 1 Peter 2.12. They're 
for glorifying God. Why were they glorifying God? Because they had recognized that God had visited them. And the context there is what? What did Jesus do? He raised who? A dead man. Must be a prophet. God has visited us. Praise God. <laughs> they give glory to him. They'd recognized that salvation had come. And that's how I believe Peter uses the day of visitation here in verse 12. He is speaking of the day of salvation. These Gentiles, these unbelievers who were slandering these believers will have their hearts softened to the message of the gospel through the faithful witness of these believers and they will repent and trust Christ and on that day, that day will be the day of salvation for them. That will be the day when God visits them and takes their heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh where he takes their dead heart and makes it alive. On that day, that's the day of visitation. That's the day of their salvation. And what will they do? They'll join with us and glorify God. That's what Peter's talking about. And how does that happen? He says that they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God. He says, listen church, they're watching. The world is watching. How are you living? Are you living to draw them toward Christ? Or are you, are you giving them reasons to reject Christ? In closing, there's a poem that I found. It's unknown who wrote this poem. But listen to what this poem says. says you are writing a gospel a chapter each day by deeds that you do by words that you say men read what you write whether faithless or true say what is the gospel according The unbelieving world is watching. They're watching our actions. As we live our daily lives, our lives must match the gospel that we preach. And where does it all begin? It all begins in the inner man. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these exhortations that we have from you from your word we 
thank you for this great apostle Peter who was faithful to you. Lord, we know that he was an example for us, a man who, who at one point had denied you. And yet he learned his lesson. And he lived his life to match the very gospel that he preached, the very gospel by which he was saved. Lord, we thank you for the example of this man. Father, I pray that you would help us to be faithful witnesses in this faithless world that we live in. Lord, as we look around us, we see that it continually is turning away from you. The times are getting darker. But Lord, that means that the light shines brighter. So Father, help us to be salt and light in this world. and Be faithful to preach the truth and to live it out in our lives. Lord, so that we might win others to Christ. Father, I pray for anyone who's here this morning who is not saved, who does not know this glorious gospel message, who is not redeemed and is not believed upon Christ. Father, I pray that the, this day would be the day of visitation for them, that it would be the day of salvation where you take their dead heart and make it alive. Grant them the gift of repentance and faith in Christ and give them the free gift of eternal life in you. Father, help us to be faithful witnesses for you and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name.